Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello, and welcome to Naked Reflections. At the end of the Second World War, the Holocaust survivor and Italian writer Primo Levi made his way across a devastated Europe from Auschwitz, where he had survived as a prisoner, to find his family home in Turin intact and his family unharmed. After more than 40 years working successfully as an industrial chemist, he jumped or fell to his death into the interior well of the apartment building where his family had lived for generations. He was 68 years old. Some members of his family dispute the official coroner's verdict of suicide, but Levy's account of a recurring dream he suffered surely gives weight to the coroner's judgment. I'm sitting at a table with my family or my friends or at work or in the green countryside. In short, a peaceful, relaxed environment, apparently without tension or affliction. Yet I feel a deep and subtle anguish the definite sensation of an impending threat. And in fact, as the dream proceeds, everything collapses and disintegrates around me, the scenery, the walls, the people, while the anguish becomes more intense and more precise. Now everything has changed to chaos. I am alone in the centre of a grey, turbid nothing. And now I know what this thing means – And I also know that I have always known it. I am in Auschwitz once more, and nothing else is true. All the rest was a brief pause, a deception of the senses. In fact, that was the dream. My family, nature in flower, my home. Now that distant dream, that dream of peace, is over. And in my actual dream, which continues... A well-known voice resounds, a single word, gelid, not imperious, but brief and subdued. It is the dawn command of Auschwitz, a foreign word, feared and expected. 
Stavash. Get up. That passage from The Truce, the second part of Levy's incomparable account of his Second World War experience, seems to speak of delayed trauma or of traumas so deep that it may never have been properly overcome. Suicide is our unhappy topic this week. It's more common than you might think. No one is immune from suicidal thoughts, and there are more than 5,000 actual deaths by suicide in the UK each year. Only one guest this week, the Irish writer Rose Doyle. Rose has 17 novels to her name and more Irish Times articles than she cares to remember, not to mention plays for radio, TV and so on, but... More importantly for this podcast, she has a sad tale to tell, and she's telling it for the first time. Welcome, Rose. Hello, Ed. Good morning. (laughs) Good good morning to you. Tell me about Simon, Rose. Simon. Simon was um, my only biological son. I had an adopted son as well. Um, He was born when I was 37. I'd been unable to conceive, so he was very, very, very much wanted. Simon was one of those dreamy, sensitive children, and he grew up to be a sensitive man in the sense that he was very aware of the world around him, of everything. He was one of those people without a shell. He saw and heard and was aware of everything and analysed everything. He wanted definitive answers. He couldn't settle for being almost or maybe or contentment he had a very inquiring mind when he was about six he said to me that he was very worried about infinity we were living in brussels and he spoke french before he spoke english because he decided that french was for children and english was for adults he made all his own decisions in life he couldn't be told he could be persuaded but it was very difficult but anyway he was very worried about infinité and where was, how could there be infinity? How could there be no end? And that sort of inquiring mind is how he grew up. He was very creative. He wrote very well, but he drew particularly well. When he was about eight or nine, he was writing storyboards without even knowing what they were. That sort of child, you know. When he was about 13, uh, the bullying started because he was called the faggot and the this and the whole range. You can imagine, I'm sure anybody who's had a son or a daughter knows what the range of um, abuse is like. And kids can be so cruel to one another, can't they? That term you said, when he doesn't have a shell, that's also about a protection, isn't it? That need for self-protection? He sort of was a bit of a purist, Ed. He didn't see why you would need to protect yourself from the world, why the world wasn't right. Why is the world so unfair? And that would have been magnified during the bullying episodes, I I expect. Is that when things started to go wrong, as it were? He and his adopted brother bonded very well. His brother was six when when we adopted him from Colombia in Latin America. And um, Uriel was very, very, very different to Simon, very tough, very, very clever, very talented. But from the word go, as they say in Ireland, he put Simon on the back foot. He was very jealous. It was a very loving relationship in that they even made up their own language. And they spoke in this confusion of Spanish, French and English for about three years. When they went to secondary school, the bullying began and it was it was headed up by his brother, indeed. And it was very cruel. So Simon decided he would discard his personality and he would become somebody else. 
And as a friend said, after about a year or two of this business of doing push-ups and all sorts of carry-on, I remember her saying he has done such violence to his own person. She was very wise in that she looked at him one day and said that. So he became this other Simon, this toughie. He was very good at football and he was very good at all the things he decided to be good at, but he was in conflict with himself and you could see it. And the bullying went on and on and on. And then at about 16, he just disappeared. He ran away. He, and he turned up after about three days. And he was found in Ilan Clor, which is in the Gaeltacht off the southwest coast, because he had been there when he was about 11. It's a kind of an Irish youngster's rite of passage. We don't have summer camps, but we have the Gaeltacht where... Everybody leaves home for the first time and goes off and all the rest of it. And he'd been very happy there and he'd fallen in love there at 11 with Maura, girl who used to take him on her bike on the crossbar and things. So he said when he was found that he went back there because it was the last time he'd felt good or right. Anyway, he was brought home and it was, this is where it really began. He was suicidal then, so he was hospitalised. And um, they put him on medication. And I honestly believe that's where it all began. I don't think a child of 16 should have been medicated, Ed. Medication is increasingly used, isn't it, in psychiatric treatment? I have to be in my bonnet about big pharma. I really do think that in times to come, people will look back and they will see what happened over a period of maybe 15 years as a sort of a genocide. Mentally ill people die 25 years younger than the rest of us on average. There are all sorts of terrifying statistics. Plus, putting youngsters on strong medication of a psychotropic nature before they've developed emotionally, mentally, before their brains have even developed. Why would it not be dangerous? I mean, it's not rocket science to know that we're doing terrible harm. And it did terrible harm to Simon, apart from the fact that in about two and a half months, he put on something like five stone. And he was a very slim, tall boy. And he never got over that. He disliked himself so much because of that. He was drinking, then he did drugs. It's a well-worn trajectory, especially it's what boys do. Girls, it's different. I think because the culture amongst young girls is so different, they're used to talking together. As Simon said, to do that would have been a weakness. And a weakness was the word he used all the time about himself. Whereas girls do share, if they're feeling very bad or feeling rotten about the world and themselves, they share it more. And if they have a psychiatric illness or if they're emotionally upset or whatever and they need to go to hospital, they're far more inclined to talk to the people caring for them than boys. There are two men listening to this. I'm sure they won't disagree. <laughs> I wonder, actually, in my experience, whether the younger generation of men are a little bit more um, willing to talk and share more. I certainly see that in, in my son's generation, that they would share things that, frankly, I would struggle sharing. You found Gould Farm, didn't you? You found some help. There was support for Simon. It was wonderful. Simon was in a very severe lockup facility because he'd been wandering around at night. And oh, there was very, very poor psychiatric care. In Dublin, there really is, and it's not much better now, all these years later, 10 years later. He was in this severe facility, and there was a parents, a group of mainly mothers, I have to say, to be sexist. We used to meet on Sunday mornings 
to see what we could do. About the third or fourth week, I met a woman called Mary O'Connor. She was a terrific woman. And her boy was in serious trouble because he'd become violent during a psychotic episode. But she said to me, your lad hasn't done anything terrible. He could still be saved. And she told me about an American psychiatrist who had visited the hospital a year before. Fisher was his name and had talked about a facility in Massachusetts. Anyway, it's, to cut a long story short, it took months and it, a lot of work on visas, but I would totally recommend this to anybody who's willing to sell their house as I did. <laughs> it's called Gould Farm. Uh, it's there since 1913. It's there to care for people suffering in mind and in spirit. And it's a huge 700 acre farm. And the principle is that work works. It's a very sharing community. It thrives on compassion and kindness. Now, it's all a little bit over the top in that American fashion, but it works. Guess which are the patients, the young people who come there to, to get well. They get up at seven with everybody else. They have breakfast and they greet the day with a song, which, of course, young European kids there cringe a bit at some of this, you know, but still they get used to it. Then they work the day on the farm. And one of the glories of it is that everybody has a responsibility. There are eight teams on the farm. There's kitchen, farm, animals. They even have charge of three and a half or miles rather of the Appalachian Trail. So that has to be cleared every day. You need to work in the forest. It's quite a remarkable place. And the staff live on campus, as it were. They're all together and everybody is responsible for the farm and for their well-doing and for their food and for the upkeep. So when people go there, they immediately have a sense that there is a point in them being in the world. There are lots of youngsters who understand how they feel. They immediately make friends. It's not paradise because it's tough, but it does give a routine, a schedule, a meaning to life. And it's a very beautiful place. And he became very well there, Ed. Then they have a step-down facility in Boston. And he was there for a year and a half. Simon decided he was well enough and he came off his meds in Boston. He was living in an apartment and it, supposedly attending meetings and things. So he came off his meds overnight without help, without word, without support, without anything. And then ran away to Florida and lived on the beach there for a while. Great adventures. And he stayed in touch with you during this time because you presumably were in, in Ireland or, yeah. He would ring me quite often. He never stopped ringing and calling. And I think the original Simon, who really cared about people and was a very loving person, never disappeared at all. You know, he lived in conflict with the man he created and the man he was. I'm sure this quite familiar, you know, when children and youngsters are bullied. They try to be something else. And that conflict within the soul, it's not uncommon, Rose, is it? I mean, you know, many young people, as they're growing up, working out who they are, with or without a shell, are struggling. I mean, it's part of that, that teenagehood, mm -hmm. and, and particularly if they're suffering from bullying and, and, and a loss of place, I suppose, in the family, in their identity. Um, but of course, in Simon's case, it went so much deeper, didn't it? And he was getting better or he was managing. Then he went to Boston and came off all too quickly, it sounds like. And, and then he returned to Dublin. Then he wanted to come back to Dublin because he couldn't work in the United States. He didn't have that kind of visa and nothing would do him but to come home. Even though this was 
2010, 11, a really bad time for work, just after the crash and all that. And there was no reasoning with him. And so I brought him home to Dublin. And of course, he didn't get work. And he spun around and I got him some help. And anyway, I myself became ill then. And uh, I sometimes wonder, I had a cancer from which I recovered. But I had to tell him that he asked me bluntly on the phone, after I'd had the test and when I was in and I said yes. And really, three days later, he hung himself. And I often wonder, um, yeah. He used to say quite frequently that I should just leave him and go and live my life and that he was a burden and he wished he wasn't like he was and that kind of thing. But you can forever wonder. But I think he had said to me once at one point when he was very depressed, he said, and this isn't uncommon either, he said... If I ever come through all this and I can see what I've been and what my life has been, <clears throat> I will hang myself because I don't want to go back to this. And I think that's what happened. He was having incredible clarity. The doctor who treated him before he went to the United States said he was so much better, that he was a different person. He was clear in his thinking. He was... He was gaining what they call in the, the psychiatrists call it this word insight. It's, it's not a bad word, actually. And he did have insight about himself and everything. And um, he hung himself, basically. Yeah. And he made that final decision. That he had almost had agency. Oh, he did have agency in that clarity of thought, in that insight. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I do. He had no toxins. They did a toxology test. He had no toxins of any kind, not even drink or anything like that. He was absolutely clear of everything they said. Um, and he'd been in hospital, you see, in Dublin. And uh, he just walked out. He was always walking out. It wasn't a secure place or anything. He just walked out. And I thought he'd just walk back in again, which he sometimes did. Because he said they should allow him out to play football and to go to the cinema. <laughs> they wouldn't, so he used to do it anyway. <laughs> it sounds like a really stubborn character. Once he's made up his mind, that's it. There's no, there's no stopping him. And he used to tell me I was stubborn. <laughs> he probably got it from his mother. <laughs> Rose, there will be many parents and young people listening to Naked Reflections. And I'm wary of using the term advice because I'm sure you don't want to give advice in that sense. But what do you have to say to those parents who, who have young children, teenage or children who are struggling? Looking back on your story, your experience, what would you like to share with them? Well, you're dead right. I mean, who am I to give advice at? Because, you know, my son died. But on the other hand, that gives me sort of an insight, I suppose. Um, I would never, never stop talking and talk about the illness, whatever is wrong, if it's depression, if it's psychotic episodes, whatever it is, talk about it bluntly, clearly, name it. Don't hedge around it. And if you can, I know it's not easy, but get those around him and, and friends and family to just be face on with it. I learned this in Gold Farm, and it's something that's just common sense anyhow. There's a Finnish therapy called Open Dialogue, and that's more or less what it is. Everybody who's connected with the person who's troubled talks to them, tells their story, tells him or her how they see it and how they perceive it. Just keep it an open, 
out there things so that it loses its power in the dark recesses of the mind, so that it loses this sort of magnetic or imaginative or, or this sort of cloudy haunting hold it has on people. The basis of all of this is fear. And if you can keep talking about it, keep it open, keep everybody involved and naming it and even laughing about some of the things that have happened, if you can manage it. It takes the fear and the haunting, horrible, I can't hold on to this quality out of it. If that's advice, that's what I would say. Naming the fear is a very powerful concept and it reduces the fear to some extent when we talk about our deepest worries somehow they lighten just a little bit when you expel them particularly in a, a safe space and I, I know this from the work of the Wolf Institute and some of the dialogues that we have across faiths it's that elephant in the room isn't it when you don't talk about it it just grows to a mammoth size so and keep the channels open I suppose Rose as well keep the channels open and words are so powerful you know naming you're right putting a name on it actually gives it a substance it's not locked in a dark shed in your head anymore it's out there it can be faced it can be looked at and furthermore it can be talked about and shared with other people i don't think you're ever going to eliminate suicide because it is a choice ed it isn't easy to accept that it is a choice the day simon died a friend said you know, Rose, that was his life, 27 years. And I felt like hitting her, but she was right. That was his life. 27 years is what he was given. And though I'm agnostic, I'm a very shaky agnostic, I'm afraid. <laughs> he was given that. And that's what he did with it. We have to respect people. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guest this week is the writer Rose Doyle, and we're discussing suicide. It seems that suicide can happen in clumps. Take the case of the poet Ted Hughes. His wife, Sylvia Plath, famously killed herself at the age of 30. Six years later, Hughes' subsequent partner, Asia Wavell, also killed herself. Four decades after that, and there's an echo of Primo Levi here, Nicholas Hughes, son of Ted and Sylvia, killed himself. He was 47. Suicide seems to be contagious in some kind of weird way. Family histories of it are significant according to clinicians. Well, why do you think that is, Rose? Yeah, I've thought about that. It just seems to me very commonsensical. It's a copycat thing. Your head is in turmoil. You hear of some real turmoil. You read or hear or are told of somebody else to whom the world was just as it seems to you and how they decided to leave this world. It seems a solution. You know that awful phrase, a permanent solution, permanent to a temporary problem, which is horrible, but it's very true. And a friend's son committed suicide when I was in the United States. And um, I remember him saying to me, he just wanted to end the rattle in his head. And that's good a definition of why somebody would take their life just to end the rattle in their head but I suppose death is an alternative to and the possibilities that there might be something else is an alternative to the horror the nightmare you're living through and in a world where everything is black and hopeless why wouldn't you end it if you can't see or talk any way out of it it's a loss of hope I think which is why if you're talking maybe you can be given some hope
and humanity and a bit of compassion. And those things might give you back some desire not to do it. I suppose I'd like to ask, and this is a bit of a personal question as well, Rose, because my great grandparents committed suicide uh, in Vienna. Uh, they did so um, before a roundup by the Nazis. They decided that they would take their own lives uh, rather than being carted off by the Nazis. And, and I never met them, of course. My parents were born in um, Vienna, came to the UK just before the war started. I've always considered their suicide, and maybe it's my way of handling it, as a positive act in extreme circumstances. Listening to you talk about Simon, what I hear is the sense of agency, the, the sense of I, I can make this decision. I'm, I have this insight. I'm not intoxicated by drunks, drugs or, or drink. So I've made this decision to take my own life. Are there ever any positive grounds for suicide or am I being naive? No, I don't think you're being remotely naive. It's very hard for us, those left behind and all that, to say, well, he was right. But objectively, we're not living their lives. I remember a psychologist treating Simon saying to me, don't try and mirror him. Don't try and get into his head. We don't know. None of us know what it's like in there. It may be worse. It may be better. And it's true. We don't know what it's like in there. And what is in that head is what life is for that person. And if the alternative for your grandparents was going to be death anyway... Why wouldn't they choose the way they wanted their lives to or their lives? Life is a gift. Why would they give that choice over to the Nazis? Why wouldn't they? It takes tremendous courage to do what they did. Objectively, I think, not all rights are agreeable. <laughs> we know that. And your life is your own responsibility and all that. Only the suicide know why and how they did it eventually. All this talk about a 15-minute decision. I don't for an instant think that your great-grandparents made a 15-minute decision, nor did Simon. I do think suicide is a right, but that's such a dangerous thing to say. But, but one's life is one's life, and it's about the only right you have is how you live it and how you end it. I think suicide was always with us. It's just now that it is more accepted. I mean, in Ireland... For centuries, it was never recorded or anything. It didn't even come up in the coroner's court. It didn't come up in the logs or anything. It was just put down as misadventure. For years and years and years. When I was a child, nobody committed suicide. <laughs> but, of course, the church would have separate, not just the church, of course, but there would be separate places for graves of people who committed suicide because it was deemed a sin. I know you defined yourself as a, a shaky agnostic. I suppose I'd define myself as a shaky religious believer. But I think the shakiness is part of what it is to be human. And if we, I don't know, deceive ourselves that we're so certain about something, I think that's the heresy, that's, that's the sin, um, because the flawed human condition is, a, is an unsettled one. And that must come across in your writings and your plays, let alone in your own life. I've always encouraged young people I worked with when I was in Gulfarm to find a passion. To have a passion is a great lifesaver, you know, to write, to paint, to garden. Is a great... Writing was terrific. As an Irish writer of Whalon said once, um, it puts order on the chaos. And it does, you know, that is another bit of advice I would give, trying to steer somebody through a bad time. Get them to write. It does put order on it. Because getting words out of yourself in any fashion... You have to structure them to make sense of them. So to make sense of what's in your head, you structure words on paper. And if it means creating a piece of fiction and putting all of that onto somebody else, it's very, very levelling in the head. 
again, going back to my world, there's something called systematic theology. And systematic theology is meant to make sense of everything in a logical, rational way. But of course, as far as I'm concerned, the meaning of life is not logical. It's not rational. It's the last thing being systematic. I mean, you know, if God was going to be systematic, he wouldn't have created the world in the way that it is. Right. So there's something about adding chaos to those of us who feel so certain in our views, whatever they are, political, religious, moral, but I think the uncertainty, the shakiness is is a strength, actually. Well, I think it's everything. I mean, why would we call that chaos? Isn't that what Keats meant when he said the irritable scratching? The irritable scratching infinitives too, irritably scratch all the time. But that's not chaos. That seems to me common sense to seek answers, to discuss, to have the joy of openness about life and the possibilities are open and endless. So there can be magic as well as in that chaos. It's all up for grabs. That's all we have time for this week. Profound thanks to my guest, Rose Doyle, and thanks to you two for listening. You might want to browse our archive of podcasts where you'll find a wide range of subjects, something for every taste. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.